The Sam Sorbo Show is brought to you in partnership by the Herzog Foundation. Hi there. I'm very excited about my guest, but before I get to my guest, I have a little message from our sponsor. We've all seen it. The stuff that Hollywood is throwing at us, the woke agenda. Uh, we get hooked onto uh, what we think is a really nice little TV show with our kids. And then episode five or six, we see the woke agenda peeking it, peeking through and people are not what they seem and all of that. Well, we need a better way to be entertained. So I encourage you, pick up Brave Books. They have a whole series of books. And these are books that take place in a magical land that I have it here. Look at this. You get a map for your kids to, to, um, to mark. They can, it goes up on their wall and they mark it with uh, all the different things that come from the books. They have coloring for your kids. They have uh, lesson things at the back of the book for you to talk about. This book is about bravery. This is the one my husband did, but they talk about bravery um, and other virtues. Here's uh, the lesson is a good protector puts others needs before his own. These books inspire your children to be heroes. Let's do more of that and less of the other stuff, right? Welcome to the Sam Sorbo Show. I am so excited to be talking with this gentleman. Michael Ashley began his writing career as a reporter, and then he transitioned to Hollywood to work for the head of a literary department at Creative Artists Agencies, that's CAA for the, for the informed um, a former Disney screenwriter and university professor, he's written over 50 books on many subjects. He specializes on AI, big data, and he also is now a columnist for Forbes, Entrepreneur, and Becker's Hospital Review. He came to me via a friend of mine in Alaska, and she sent me a video of him speaking to a group of people I'm not even sure where that was, but um, I was just, I, I said to myself, I have to have him on the show. So welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate you having me here today. So you were talking about AI, the future, and how the world is going awry. And uh, your views on education really got to me because I've been working in education for quite a while. And I attribute most of the ills in society today to our system of schools. What do you say about that? <clears throat> I think that's absolutely true. Um, if you think about it, our children spend up to 16,000 hours of their lives between, let's say, five years old before they graduate at the age of 18. That's a long time to spend being indoctrinated and to receiving that kind of propaganda. And we know that, or many people know, that for the last 100 years or so, there's been a progressive movement to change the kind of education that our children receive. So I think it would surprise many people that we've really gone downhill in the last few decades. And that was on purpose, I think. There was a concerted effort to destroy our ability to have our children read as proficiently as they used to. Um, not only that, but they're not learning the things that we think that they're learning in school. And maybe one positive outgrowth of the whole COVID situation is that parents, for the first time, got to realize what it is that their parents or that their students are actually learning. And I'll put that in air quotes there in school, which is not what they, not what they would imagine. They're not focusing on the things that are going to help them in life. Instead, they're being indoctrinated and they're being indoctrinated to hate their country, to not revere um, the wonderful historical figures that built this nation. And instead, they're learning to, to hate their peers and really to hate themselves. Yeah, in fact, I just posted this today. 
um, how to destroy a society. And, and I actually kind of want to talk to you about this. One, make art ugly. Have you, do, do you, do you know what that comes from? Do you know what we're talking about there? Uh, I do. In fact, that wasn't something I mentioned in this particular speech, but I have done that in the past where we're talking about beauty, truth, and goodness. And I think um, very much this is a war for our minds. And when you surround people with ugliness, when you make them hate their surroundings, it has an internal impact. And so I think it is on purpose that we don't have these beautiful places that we used to in America. Um, if you look at uh, the, the the cityscapes in places uh, like Italy or the rest of Europe, they're gorgeous. And those are a lot uh, to do with what, what happened during the Renaissance. <clears throat> but in America, we're surrounded by ugliness. And I, I think it very much impacts your psyche um, and what we're calling fifth generational warfare. Mm. In fact, I did a, I've, I've been sort of doing a little bit of an ongoing series. For some reason, we put really, really ugly art into airports. And I don't know if it's on, if it's purposeful or and and i i think to a small degree it's purposeful in the sense that somebody wants to put ugliness out there right but there are a lot of people who have bought into the art scene and they're looking at it and they think that they know how that it's beautiful like you know but i i took my daughter to europe recently and we went to an art gallery and we were shown around by this young art entrepreneur person and he explained why the pieces were beautiful. And my daughter said to me, mom, if you have to explain why it's beautiful, it's not beautiful. <laughs> and I just went, oh my gosh, that's perfect. So if you make the art ugly, one of the other things here is um, make buildings oppressive. So this is also part of the communist agenda. And why do they make buildings oppressive? Well, I think that in, in some ways it's meant to demoralize you and it's yes. meant to break you down. And I want to say one thing about the, uh, what you were saying there for just a moment. If you think about the experience that you have when you go to a really nice coffee shop, and even though I have my problems with Starbucks, when you go inside a nice Starbucks, you feel relaxed, you feel cozy and warm, right? And so that affects your mood. Now, if you go to a fast food place, one where they want you out and they want to turn over their tables quickly to get more customers in, you'll, you'll notice that they have vibrant colors and those are on purpose to get you out the door quicker, right? And so it's just a small way that they affect you psychologically. And so going back to what I mentioned about dehumanizing you, if you put oppressive buildings in there, if you make the surroundings ugly, you are very much affecting the psyche and the emotional state of the people that you want to control. And the psyche is affected negatively because it's made to feel small and powerless. So yes. the oppressive buildings actually have that effect on you. And, you know, I, I remember um, there's a place in uh, outside of Jerusalem. I think it's the Mount of Beatitudes or consider it's considered to be the Mount of Beatitudes. And they erected a church there but it was erected in honor of Mussolini. And it is, it's the ugliest church you've ever seen. It's an octagonal building that's just sort of a big block and the windows are very small and rectangular. And there's nothing that is beautiful or poetic or graceful about it. And that's because it was erected with this communist mentality. And we're seeing this more and more in our culture. The, and it's, and it, I, I, I relate everything back to communism, make porn free, make God a joke, make food poison, make dads optional, make politicians rich, make yeah. money worthless, make buildings oppressive. 
uh, make men and women compete, make children hate their ancestors. And then it says, what did I miss? And I put make, make sex worthless, you, you know, valueless, make children have no value, make babies worthless, you know? And I think that that's, that's where we've gotten to in our culture, but I do see a response. And it's like when you just spoke, the 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 you know the the place that I'm talking about. What was the reaction to people to to your speech there? Sure, um, you're talking about COVID and beyond. I spoke in Anchorage, and uh, what you mentioned very much pertains to the final message that I said in the talk, which is this: there is a story being told, whether we know it or not. We all, as human beings, are hardwired to understand life through story, and the powers that shouldn't be want us to believe that we are powerless. They want us to feel like we're little, like you mentioned a moment ago. So part of the way that they do that is to surround us with ugliness. It's to make us give up already before we even try to fight back. And so it's so important that we change that story within. And so if you do feel empowered, if you are surrounded by beauty, if you want to create more beauty and you want to, um, <clears throat> if you want to respond with more culture, that's not what they want, right? And so what I would encourage people instead is to create art, to create beauty. Um, so much of the digital uh, prison that they want to erect around us, so much of the technological tyranny that they want to foist upon us, the best way to beat it is through culture. It's through analog solutions. If we simply just change our outlook and our perspective, that is one way that we can begin to turn this around. It's, it's a beautiful message. Part of the reason that your message so resonated with me is this idea of telling a better story. And I just came back from a conference in London that Jordan Peterson and uh, Baroness Philippa Stroud put on. And the name of the conference, well, the name of the conference was the ARC Conference, but the theme was a better story. Mm -hmm. And the idea being that they've got a story and it's a very, it's a horrible story. You're a cancer on the earth. The earth is going to collapse. Don't have children. Uh, you you eat too much meat. Uh, you fart too much. Uh, like, like they cover everything, and you're left feeling dehumanized, right? But there is a better story, and so that was what you left your audience with was this idea that they could choose a different story. And everything, of course, is perspective, right? Yes. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, it's no accident that we tell parables to children to help them make sense of the world. From the very beginning of our lives, we're, we understand life through storytelling. If you want to even recall what happened to you yesterday, you are likely to create a narrative to explain what occurred. And for a very long time, there's been a concerted effort to create this propaganda to make us believe that we're small, that we're powerless. But if we first of all wake up and remember that we're living in a story right now, not only do we understand life through story, but we're actually living stories. And if we begin to recognize that, well, then we can tell a very different story. And so I believe in telling an empowering story and to imagine if you think about every story that we that we love so much, they often involve a protagonist that is outgunned, they're outnumbered, it's the underdog, right? And so we gravitate to those stories. And right now, we are we're exactly that outgunned, um, outmaneuvered protagonist. We are that underdog right now. But how do most stories end up? They end up with that protagonist, with that underdog winning. And we root for them because everything in the world would say there's no way that they can possibly win in this story. But that's not true. I very much believe, actually, I'll change it. I know that we win in this story, but it, be, but it begins with changing our perception and changing our, our awareness. Right. 
and and we write the story. That's I mean that's it's like uh it's like oh you just have to click your heels together three times and just say there's no place like home. You write your own story. That's really sort of the 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 trick to all of this. So talk to me about AI because um this is it's a it's a concept that I'm wrestling with. My daughter's an artist. She is very concerned about AI because she thinks that it will kill art. But at this conference, I spoke with Jonathan Pajot, who's a very well-known artist. Um, <clears throat> and his take was AI is going to basically start cannibalizing itself and it will run itself into the ground because it won't have new information. Um, so I'm not sure which way to look at it. Can you make sense of it for me? Sure. Well, I'll say, first of all, that it's not something to easily even make sense of right now, but I'll do my very best. In fact, I heard that interview, um, which you're talking about, and I agree with him. Um, so if you think about AI for just a moment, it is working in a backwards mode. People think about AI and they think about it being futuristic, but it, it's actually um, looking backwards. So it's retro. It, yes. Um, it's making, it's uh, creating patterns after past data that it's received. And so the way that ChatGPT works is, it's using natural language processing to scour the internet and look about look at what other people have said about different topics. So if you put in a prompt and you say, hey, I want you to write me a paper about why the Civil War occurred. Well, it's looking at what other people wrote about. And so in that way, it is cannibalizing past writers. And at a certain point, if people abdicate their roles of being artists and being creative and allow ChatGPT and other generative artificial intelligence to create for them, that eventually it's going to run out of stuff to steal. It's going to run out of stuff uh, to, to plagiarize. Right. And so there is that benefit in some way that if we don't participate in the system, if we don't give in and allow it to steal our work, then maybe it will run out of material. But what I would also say about artificial intelligence when it comes to generative AI is this. We are in danger of losing our abilities and our skills. If you think about something That's like- That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, yes. it's, we will atrophy. Yes. We have atrophied yes. to such a degree because of our education system we've atrophied because we haven't been challenged. We've been dumbed down. Yes. And when I give speeches in the room, uh, I'll ask people, you know, who here can do long division or multipl multiplication in their heads? And people that are older than me, they raise their hands. They can do it. People that are younger than me, they cannot do it. And I also say, how many people here um, remember what Encyclopedia Britannica is? I mean, the physical version. Um, I gave a talk a few weeks ago and a 15-year-old in, in the room had no idea what this is. So more and more, we are giving over these abilities to other systems. And I'll give you another example. How many young people can cook for themselves these days? Right now, they're getting Uber Eats or they're getting DoorDash. I can. <laughs> My young people are super chefs. It's awesome. Good, good. <laughs> and the other example I give is I talk about London cab drivers. Just a few years ago, yes. they were responsible for memorizing whole city blocks, thousands and thousands of streets. And so they had bigger hippocampi. Right, that's the part of your brain that deals with spatial dynamics. You think about mariners just a few centuries ago, they could traverse the whole globe and they weren't using GPS systems because obviously they were not around. And so my message to people would be is, is don't use ChatGPT, use your own brains, find analog solutions, read great books, engage in these different ways. Because if you think about it, what is your life ultimately? 
Is your life meant to just be this one convenient act where AI will tell you what movies to watch or what books to read? It will find where to go for you. It will do all these other things for you. Well, what point do you stop living and, and allow AI to take over and to do all these other things for you? And if that isn't a strong enough argument, here's what I would say. What if there's an EMP attack tomorrow and all of this electronics, all this AI goes out the window? Where will you be then? We need to go back to the skills that sustain Western civilization for thousands of years. We need to go back to the people that we once were. Yeah, I I I agree to the extent that when I'm doing my bookkeeping, I add things up in my head just for the just for the practice. And then I might double check them. <laughs> but typically I I can typically do that. I can do the 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 short edition or the um you know the the column edition but uh but that's just to try to see if I can sort of you know um okay you've written this book or you've co-authored a new book called Neuromind Triumphing Over Technological Tyranny and um and it's across the nation now tell me about the book Absolutely so um Robert Edward Grant and I decided to write this book because we were very concerned about what was going on. Um, one, we've already been working together for a few years on things like um, surveillance capitalism. So I met him a few years ago and we were already concerned pre-COVID about the ways in which big data was being appropriated um, and how um, organizations like Amazon and Google were stealing your data and using it to become super rich. We were already worried about that. And then here we have COVID and all of a sudden we have things like vaccine passports and we have shadow banning and censorship and so we want people to understand that there is a real danger with centralized control that is the real danger in our minds which is this you have these behemoth companies out there that are using artificial intelligence they're using technology and they amass more and more power and control now growing up i watched movies like terminator 2 and we were we were told to fear things like skynet and uh, autonomous <clears throat> artificial intelligence weapons that is a danger too, but I think the real danger comes from this much centralized control. If you think about it right now, so many people are getting their information from social media platforms, they're getting them from these aggregated sources that have a, um, they have a, a very big investment to, to control our lives right now. They have an agenda. They yes. definitely have an agenda and they show you what they want you to see, not necessarily what you're asking to see. Very much so. And so we are more and more ceding control to these big organizations. And so if you think about just news for, for one second uh, there, you know, back in the 90s, there were so many different publications. There were so many different media sites in which you could get a diversity of viewpoints, right? It wasn't perfect. But right now, about six corporations own all about almost all of the media right now, except for the alternative media, of course, people like you um, and the ones that I very much tune into. But they're controlling the narrative. And so when an event like... Um, let's say the, the war in Israel that just broke out, if we're talking about Ukraine, if we're talking about COVID, that means that most of the people are being guided into a certain way of believing what reality is, what we can call consensus reality. And so not only is big tech and big, big media spying on you, not only are they censoring you, but they're controlling the very fabric of reality, what we're calling consensus reality. And so we that's, need to- that's a, That is such a term, consensus reality. I mean, it's 1984. Yes. It's they they make the reality and then they push it on you, and that's all you're allowed to see. So that's all you see. It's Plato's cave all over again, in yeah. a sense. 100. 
And so we wanted people to begin to think this way. And one of the examples that we give in the book is if you think about 1984, they have the Ministry of Truth. And so, um, you know, Joseph Smith's job is to burn books, to physically destroy them. But even George Orwell, as prescient as he was, couldn't imagine how easy it could be in the year 2022, which is when we were, when we were working on it. You can memory old stuff right now. You don't have to burn books anymore. You can simply delete it or you can change definitions of words, which is, of course, what they did with the word inflation. Um, and so if we bring up Wikipedia. People think that Wikipedia is this dispassionate, objective news sort news site. It's not. It's being controlled by a cabal of editors, and what? so they. I'm sorry. Start. What you you said? They changed the definition of inflation. Oh yeah. So and normally the definition of inflation would be. Um, I'm sorry. Recession. Excuse me. It wasn't inflation. Oh recession. okay. Recession. I'm yes. Sorry. Yes. Recession. It's no yes. longer the two two, two quarters. quarters or whatever. Yes. Very much so. And okay. so they're changing that because they're saying that we're not in a recession. Excuse me, but yeah, yes, that's they exactly right. right. They've they've just they just redefined recession. They redefined vaccine. They redo. I did a book. I wrote a book. Oh, it's right there. Sorry, there. Uh, my book, Words for Warriors, is all about the different words that they've taken and redefined. They just redefine them, and so they no longer mean what you thought they meant. They mean something new. But I mean, you can look at Hunter Biden's laptop. Right. The, there was a whole disinformation. I like they coined this term disinformation because they do it so much so there was a disinformation campaign that predated knowledge of the laptop you know generalized knowledge of the laptop mm -hmm. i mean just now the laptop doesn't exist even though it very much is there <laughs> right what i want to say about that is i mean yeah. think about how all of those officials in the uh you know the intelligence agencies came out and said that this was disinformation they said it had something to do with russia and it very much had an impact on the election. And then a few months later, as it always happens, they come out and say, well, you know, it wasn't exactly the way that we thought it was. And so, but by that time, the consensus reality has been very much affected and it occurs all the time. Truth will then leak out uh, eventually, like let's say the, the lab leak hypothesis, right? The, in the beginning, we were, we were told that it had to be a wet market. It had to be, you know, um, that's the way it occurred. And then little by little, the truth seeps out. But by then, people can't do anything about it. And the same thing happened with weapons of mass destruction back in 2003. You know, they lied us into the second Iraq war. Turns out there weren't weapons of mass destruction over there. But it doesn't matter because we're already involved in a war. And we know that that went on for years and years. And so they're controlling, again, consensus reality. And the way that Robert and I wanted to write this book was in a way that it would affect hearts and minds. Emphasis on, on the word hearts. So Every chapter is written in what we call a show and tell format. So the show is a story, much like you might read in a novel, with characters that you can identify with, that you're emotionally connected to. And then the tell is the uh, the context, and it's our political argument. And so you get both aspects of it. And we wanted to write a book in a different way to connect with hearts and minds. And by the way, the, the title is Neuromind, and mind is spelled M-I-N-E-D. Yes. Which I think is really important right yes very much so so basically they are mining us they are mining our brains when it comes to these uh going back to surveillance capitalism if you think about it all the things that we do whether you what you search for what you click on what you talk about all of your actions and activities are being mined all of that data is being mined and right now oil has been replaced as the world's most valuable commodity it's now data 
So data is now the most valuable commodity, our own data, what you choose to, to search, what you choose to write about, the pictures that you take, the videos that you post, essentially that's your brain, that's everything that you will ever do. And so our minds are, are being, our minds are literally being mined. Right. By the way, I just heard a new shopping hack. Just say very loudly the thing that you want to find and then it will pop up in your feed. Yes, you're right. <laughs> I just love that. I'm like, but it's so true and it it's is. so eerie. And it happens all the time. Yep. And there's nothing you can do and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, okay, I want to go back to artificial intelligence because I think that that's a misnomer, mm -hmm. right? Well, yes and no. So, I mean, if you think about it, there are three types of artificial intelligence. There's artificial narrow intelligence, which is what we have now and we've had for decades. So, you know, you use your phone, it can tell you the best directions to get to wherever you want to go. And then there's artificial general intelligence, which is what they're aiming for right now, which would mean sentience, what you and I have right now. And then there's artificial super intelligence, which would mean an IQ of, let's say, 12,000. And so there are people right now they believe that we will get to artificial general intelligence, which will lead to the singularity. And basically, once you have artificial general intelligence, it goes like that to artificial superintelligence because the AI is building upon its past capabilities. It's growing and growing and growing. So in that sense, we don't have we don't have sentience when it comes to AI yet. I mean, unless there's some secret program I don't know about, there very well may be. Um, it is not uh, entered the fray yet. And so we do have things that are smart, but we don't have them. They don't have the abilities that you and I do. Right. So, so the thing is that it's just programmed. It's yes. all programmed, which means that it had to originate with a human, mm -hmm. which means that it doesn't have intelligence. That's, this is my, so I, as you, I, I'm a word person. Like we gotta, we gotta have our definitions lined up. We gotta be, you know, specific, right? And so I think that artificial intelligence is a misnomer. Now, if we get to artificial general intelligence, then you can start applying the word, uh, right? Are, are you following me on that? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that- But I think know, that it's meant to intimidate us. I think that it's weaponized wording. I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but if you think- but there, it, it feels like it's smart, right? It feels like it's it's more intelligent than you already. And I think to your point, that's that's on purpose, right? So if you go to your phone and you ask it to give you a, a twenty page paper on whatever topic it is, and your phone supplies that to you, you're like, wow, this really is smart. I could never write a twenty page paper like that. But really, what is it doing? It's stealing someone else's word and words, and it's doing it so well that you can't even go back and determine who it stole from. And so it has a semblance of intelligence to your point, but it's not really doing what you and I can do. At least not yet. It has a semblance of working. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I, you know what? I, 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 I mean, I see your point. I'm just, I struggle with it because just because it puts together, it did, it, it did a lot of reading and it put together some stuff, but does that, should we really call that intelligence when it's not coming up with new ideas? And that's, of course, that's the human spirit, the creativity, right? So right. schools kill creativity. That's why I want children out of schools, because we're going to need a lot of creativity in the future yes. to get us through this. Right. Well, I'm I would so say, bad. no, I would say with, with that, um, it's very sad that so, that 
what schools have done, I think, to, to children, first of all, we know that even the, the public school system goes back to Prussia, and they were trying to create vast armies of obedient workers, to use George Carlin's term, right? That's what they were really doing, and then homogenizing people so that you knew when that bell rang, you're supposed to be here. They want you to raise your hand when you want to go to the bathroom. It allows you to do what they want you to do in society, but at the same time, even 50 years ago, the students that were coming out of high schools were able to be creative in ways that they are not right now. We're killing that spark of creativity. And along comes ChatGPT to help um, students and they can plagiarize, they can create their own, um, write their own papers for them. And really it's making us into kind of robots. It's, it's shifting, making us more into robots and making the AI more human-like, right? And I yeah. think the easy way around this is parents. Parents have got to step up and say, you know what? That's not for you. I want you at home. I want you to read these books. Go back to the Western canon. Read the wonderful books that have sustained society. And once you're empowered to read by reading those books, write your own papers. And when you do that and you begin to realize that you have these creative powers, they will grow and grow and grow. Right. And so Because once you tap into your creativity, it's like a fire that burns inside. You want to exercise it some more. But you have to you have to define for my audience Western canon because some people will think that you're getting violent. Oh, well, speaking of words, C-A-N-O-N, right? If you think about all the wonderful novels, whether it's <clears throat> Mark Twain, whether we're talking about even Dostoevsky, whether we're talking about um, Lord of the Rings, all of these wonderful books that have created the culture that you and I enjoy. And of course, the Bible, the Bible will be at the heart of all of this. The Tale uh, of Two Cities. You know, I, yes. I realized the other day that um, I learned about the French Revolution, really understood it more when I read A Tale of Two Cities, which is a novel. Very much so. Absolutely. And so if you think about what, what is culture exactly, it's a, it's a mindset. It's actually like kind of the operating system, what's running behind our conscious thoughts. It's the way that you um, interpret reality and the way that you raise your children. It's the way that you decide what to do when you wake up in the morning. Culture is so important. And there, it's no wonder that, that Andrew Breitbart said politics is downstream of culture. If you control the culture, if you control what stories people are creating, if you control their value system, well, then you've got it game over. And so if you go on Netflix right now or Prime or HBO Go and you'll see all of these terrible movies out there, all of these movies that want to demoralize you. Speaking of ugliness, um, speaking of ho um, horror movies, you right. think about shows out there that just promote um, uh, sex and violence, right? That's on purpose. Now, what I would say is there's an antidote, and it's a simple one, which is this. We need to create our own culture. Create the shows and the books and the stories that reflect your values. And the more that you do that, and the more that you encourage your children and other children to read and watch and experience those shows, the more that you pull your mind back and you begin to win this war for our minds. So I, now I'm really curious, how did you grow up and how did you get to this place where you are such a counterculturalist? <laughs> uh, sure. Well, it's it's a long story, but I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I grew up, I did go to the public school systems, but uh, school system. But you know what? Uh, I think about this quite a bit. When I was in school, I did not uh, I did not participate for the most part. I had terrible grades. Um, in fact, uh, I didn't listen to anything that my teachers were saying. I was always in trouble. And um, when I was, but I was very popular and I would go out and have a, a lot of friends and things like that. When I was 15 years old, I got into a lot of trouble. Um, I'd already been in trouble for years. I, my parents were, my dad was out of town and I, 
I took his car out with my friends and we crashed it. And so I was drowning for almost a year. And at that point, I realized that I was tired of being in trouble all the time and I was going to do something with my life. And so then I went back and relearned everything that I was supposed to learn in junior high and elementary school. But all along, I've been reading lots of books. That was one thing that I always did. I was I was that kid where you have a you have like a, a history textbook you're supposed to be reading and beneath it I would have books that I was reading so I read a lot of things very early on and so when I came back and I got to to learn on my own and became more of an autodidact I think the reason why I was able to think outside of this is because all that brainwashing never affected me because I never did what I was supposed to do uh, in in school and so then um, I knew I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was ten years old. And after I got a degree in philosophy from the University of Missouri, I went to uh, went to film school at Chapman University, got an MFA in screenwriting. And so I am able to come at these things as an outsider. Um, and so I think that's what that's what enabled me to think differently. So it's not that you are techno technologically inclined. You're just a writer and you're interested in everything. I think it's a good way to put it. Um, I, my favorite genre was always science fiction. So I've written now it's it's five books on AI and big data. And I'm not a computer engineer. I'm not a computer scientist, but I'm always very interested, like you said, in learning about as many different things as I can, but especially around things that are associated with science fiction. And I think that's what enabled me to kind of take what is very technical and make it accessible for regular everyday people. Do you write science fiction also? I have, yes. Gotcha. It's just, it's fascinating to me. Um, it, it, we, we are a motley crew of people who have, I say, woken up. Uh, we are not woke, but we have awakened and uh, we're realizing that we're losing our culture. Um, do you have, are you married? Do you have kids? Mm -hmm. I'm married. I have two kids. Uh, they're eight and five years old. I hope they don't go to school. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're in a private school right now. And we do, um, you know, my wife and I, even before this whole nightmare COVID situation, um, we very much wanted to raise our kids in a certain way. Um, my, I remember my wife even saying, we had this little book that we created before our first child was born. And in one of the book, one of the questions of the book, it says, what's the most important thing that you want to communicate to your child? And then what I said was most important thing, and this was, you know, back in the year 2014, uh, was I want my child to, to think for the, for him, him or her, him or herself, because I didn't know what it would be at that point. Because I think that that's the most important thing. I mean, even going back to writing for just a moment, um, when I was growing up, I was told by a lot of people not to become a writer. Yes. Uh, they said, Don't do it. Uh, people very close to me that I won't throw under the bus, but they said, you will not be successful. Um, don't do it. And it, it really took many years of me to deprogram all of those messages because, you know, as human beings, we're very sensitive. Um, those ideas will get into our psyche, what we were talking about earlier earlier in this conversation, and they will have a dramatic impact on us. And so it took years for me to deprogram and to realize uh, what I needed to do to become a successful writer. And so I knew that going into being a parent, I really wanted my children to think for themselves. And so my wife and I have been uh, very vigilant in that regard. Yeah, I, I want to encourage you that your children don't need school and would rather have you and that you have far too much to offer your children to to squander their time being fed by people who don't have that much to offer them, um, especially the little boy who shouldn't have to sit in a classroom at all, at least before the age of nine. But um, let's see, 
I wanted to tell you, uh, well, I don't know where you live. So, um, oh, anyway, I can't remember. Uh, you, you said something, you said something about, oh, the fact that, that, uh, people will feed you. And when you're young, you're, you're supremely susceptible, especially because you might not realize it, but every time you drop your child off at school, you're telling that child, I can't, they know better than I do. So trust them. They're the authority. And so when the authority, whatever the teacher says, uh, oh, you know, your dad gave you a plastic bag for your lunch and, you know, plastic bags in the ocean kill dolphins. Your child is then in the position of considering you a dolphin killer, which is actually what happened to Andrew Breitbart. So uh, I, I wanted to say, my daughter told me she's seven, she's 18 now. So when she was 17 and a half, and she's always struggled a little bit um, with school stuff, with academics. She's brilliant, but she's an artist. And so she doesn't learn in the ways that most people learn. And she's been homeschooled ever since kindergarten, but she did go to kindergarten. And I'm, I still haven't quite digested this. She told me last summer when she was 17 and a half that it was in kindergarten, in that cute little public school with all the cute little kids and the sweet kindergarten teacher, that she learned that she was stupid. And that's what I've been battling for the past 12 years. Well, I have a related story, something that like that happened to me, actually. When I, um, you know, to get into kindergarten, you have to take some tests or whatever and so i as i mentioned earlier i never listened to authority when i was a kid i mean i still have a problem with authority now and so <laughs> i would goof off and i wouldn't do what was expected of me so i i probably didn't put any of the right answers or or didn't even fill out the test i don't remember what it was and so they put me into the remedial program for the first week of kindergarten and so obviously you're there with with children that that have cognitive problems and by the third day i was tutoring the other kids in that program and they realized they made a mistake but it still stuck with me. I mean, even now I'm relating this story to you all these years later that they thought this this little of me back then. And so that's just a small thing. But in a different way, as I mentioned, I was in trouble a lot as a kid. Um, I was always in the principal's office and those things begin to affect your psyche. You begin to associate yourself with, I don't know, I'm a bad person or I have behavior problems. Yeah. And so we, like I mentioned before, we are sensitive individuals and all of these things shape our psyche. Going back to what we talked about earlier, the reason why propaganda works so much is because of our minds. We are not, we are thinking creatures, right? And if you begin to have those certain inputs, they affect uh, your future decisions. Yeah, but now you're talking about how the propaganda affects us and it's because we've been softened. Yes. Because you and I went to public school and we learned that we had to sit quietly and not speak out of turn and not ask questions unless we had permission and regurgitate what the teacher told us to tell her. And I mean, all of these subliminal messages, I don't know, did you mention duck and cover in your speech? No, but uh, I think you're ex exactly right. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, duck and cover was just a psyops, uh, a right. psychological operation because, and we laughed about it. We thought that's ridiculous. Who's the idiot who thought that? But what we should have said is, wait a minute, what are they trying to get away with? We are not people who duck and cover. How dare they train my children to cower in right. fear? And, right. and that's what they're doing now. They're training children in school to cower in fear because of global warming or, you know, cows farting or whatever it is. And that's why 
I, I really encourage you just don't even send your children to school. They just don't need it. They're not learning anything of value. And you don't know the damage that's happening that over which you have no control. Now, some of the damage comes from you, but that's just natural parenting. That's what happens with kids. But you, they're being subjected to strangers and other children whose parents you don't know. So you don't know the other children and how they're behaving towards your children and all of that. Um, I just, I just can't get over the fact that my daughter did one year of kindergarten. That's it. And it still affected her for the rest of her life negatively until just recently when she finally realized that I was actually right. When I was telling her that she was brilliant, I wasn't just pushed, you know, putting hot air towards her just to make her feel better because she's actually dumb. She's actually quite brilliant, like astonishingly brilliant. She couldn't believe me because of what had happened to her in kindergarten. By the way, it wasn't like they went out of her, their way to make her feel stupid. It, I can paint the picture. She went into class and it was the day that they were gonna do some sight reading. And so the teacher said, you come up in front of the class. She's extremely shy. She's an introvert. There she is standing in front of the classroom. It's the most uncomfortable thing for her. She's got an anxiety thing happening. And the teacher says, read this word. And she reads it backwards or whatever. And the class laughed at her. That's it. That's all it takes. Done. So, you know, we just don't understand. You understand how fragile your children are, but we're so programmed to think, oh, they, but school is normal. That's what everybody does. So it can't be that bad. And I'm telling you, it's worse than that bad. It's damaging. It has damaged our culture to such a degree that we, we need to be more cognizant of what we're doing. And by the way, the relationship that you have with your children via the home learning pathway, you, you, people have no idea what they sacrifice when they sacrifice that amount of time with their children. They think that they're gaining something. They're not, they're losing something because, and I've, I've said, I say this to parents all the time. The relationship that I have with my teenagers is amazing. It's, it's beyond my wildest expectations, certainly my wildest dreams. And that's because I put the time in and it's not, it's, it's that simple. It's children spell love T I M E. You put the time in, you get that relationship. Did my children ever rebel during their teenage years? No, that wasn't even like rebel against what, you know what I mean? Like that never happened because they didn't have anybody feeding them you know, your, your parents are stupid. Your parents don't know things or what, whatever they get, whatever kids get in school that makes us think that it's normal for teenagers to rebel. I'm, I'm saying it's not normal. It's only been normalized and we've normalized a lot of stuff in our culture. And you know that better than most people. No, I agree with you. And I think going back to what you said about duck and cover, I mean, masks are a wonderful or, or horrific example, either way you want to put it of this. I mean, Talk about um, changing people's psyche. I mean, you're teaching kids to cower in fear and to have to put this over your face, right? And all of the associ all the associations that brings with it. I mean, and it's even sicker the fact that the teachers were pushing or, or forcing kids to put them back over their nose so that they're completely covered this way. And what does that teach children? Uh, that you're weak, that you're powerless, that there's an invisible enemy out there that will get you, and that all the other people that choose not to do it are are villainous. I mean, that's and to fear, to fear other people. Um, and also that you have no voice 
mm -hmm. because people can't understand you. And the, I mean, I, I can't even imagine the children who were just learning to speak at that point, not being able to see other people's mouths and all of that. I mean, it's, it's, it's horrendous, but we put up with it. And I would say we put up with it because we went to school and we've been well-trained. And I think it also um, negates the individuality. If you think about what Absolutely. a faith is, you know, it, it speaks to your individual persona, who you are as, as an individual, and you take that away from people and they just become this nothing. When speaking about, um, you, you may have seen those pictures of, I forgot which airport it is, where they have children in masks like this, and it was even before the pandemic. Um, but regardless, um, the idea is, is the same, is to take away that individuality to make you a conformist. But on the bright side, I'll say this, there wouldn't be such a need for propaganda if the other side were winning. You know, there wouldn't be a need to constantly be doing this stuff to us. So I think that that is reason for hope. And returning what I said earlier, I very much believe that we are the underdogs and I know that we win this, but it really takes concerted effort. It takes shows like this, what you're doing right now to wake people up and to, you know, share this. I talk about this idea in the speech that you heard me give, this idea of emergence. If just, you know, one person takes this episode that we're doing here today and they share it to somebody and they share it to somebody else and it grows and grows and it scales, more and more people wake up. You know, that's their worst night. That's their worst nightmare. Um, the globalists, the cabal, whatever you want to call them right now, there are there's so little of them and there's so many of us. But what we need to do is that we need to wake up more and more people, because if there's enough of a critical mass of us, this cannot continue. Yep. I, I second that. So tell me, Neuromind triumphing over technological tyranny. Is that for the layperson? Is that just a fun read? Good Christmas <laughs> gift, for instance? Yeah, it's a stocking stuffer. Um, depends on what you consider fun. Um, we did. I did want it to be. The first part is problem, and the second part is solution. So it's not a doom and gloom book entirely. Okay, there are things to make you fearful about this. But if you think about 1984, that's a pure doom and gloom book. That that book does not end well. This book does. <laughs> um, and so yes, it could be a, a stocking stuffer for the right person. Um, but the idea behind it is it's meant to be empowering. Yes, we bring up problems, but ultimately our message is positive. At the end of the day, life is filled with struggle and challenges, but those challenges make you into a stronger person. And yes, it's meant for the regular everyday person who may know nothing about this. We wrote it in such a way that people that may be more well-versed will still get a lot out of this book, but people that don't know any of this stuff, they can too benefit from the book. It's meant for no matter where you are on the spectrum of your knowledge of these issues, you can still get a lot from it. That is awesome. I think that's the greatest way to end this podcast. Michael Ashley, thank you so much for joining me and all the links will be uh, down below. Thanks so much for watching. This is the Sam Sorbo Show. Views and opinions expressed in the Sam Sorbo Show are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of the Herzog Foundation.